Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Salut, salut, which is of course Welsh for Achtung, Achtung. Not cheers in French twice. Thanks to both Drew Pritchard and Gary Robert Jones for pointing that out to us on Twitter. <laughs> well, James Holland and I are both back at Chiswick HQ today with plenty to get stuck into. Um, and in fact, because uh, we're recording this in the middle of the late August heat wave, we are in my uh, small city garden here. The only thing lacking is I haven't lit the barbecue. Otherwise, this would actually be a perfect it's actually, No, it looks great. And what's really adding to it is the line of... <laughs> U.S. World War Two chinos on the on the on the washing line now. I mean, good job. I laid that on especially for you, James. But <laughs> I know that. Uh, before we get cracking, some stuff we thought you might be interested in. Yes. Good morning, everyone. Um, you may have heard us extolling the virtues of the somewhat ignored Bristol bow fighter recently. Well, Eamon Hamilton got in touch via Twitter to say, love hashtag we have ways. Thank you very much, Eamon. And love James heaping deserved praise on the bow fighter. Thank you again. Uh, but he neglected to mention its contribution in the Pacific. What are you like? Oh, God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Bowie was the first really good aircraft to equip the RAAF, the Royal Australian Air Force, in New Guinea and was devastating on Kokoda and the Battle of the Bismarck Sea. Well, yeah, and I absolutely. think I think Eamon put up a, a Pathé reel uh, from, from YouTube um, of about the Battle of uh, Bismarck Sea, which was just fantastic. So all this all the stuff of Japanese shipping being attacked and then, you know, the, 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 the editing of the time where suddenly you've got a bloke pressing the, the, uh, the, the trigger on his joystick it's obviously none of it none of it all happening at once like cut together and then at the end of the footage there's this really brilliant bit with an american pilot and an australian pilot and they're sat there going well i think what we saw there was the virtue of teamwork and the australian <laughs> going that's right and i that's think right, everyone, <laughs> everyone did their bit to make it a great show and it all went off according to plan and it's 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 sort of price it's this sort of stage thing and they're all like posed across sort of leaning um, yeah yeah leaning on uh, uh, you know really uh, uncomfortably yeah yeah on ammunition boxes <laughs> smoking cigarettes it's, fa- it's absolutely fantastic anyway the Battle of Kokoda um, uh, Battle of Bismarck Sea for those of you worried uh, we might have run out of subjects to discuss and we have ways not much chance of that yeah no we'll come back to that one yeah definitely uh, and actually we should definitely do New Guinea at some point yeah, we should definitely I've do. Actually, I've been invited to go out there next August, of which is a really have. bad time. Um, so I probably won't be going. But um, it's it's nice to kind of put it on the radar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one piece of sad news this week. The death of squadron leader John Hart was announced. He was 102 and was the last surviving Canadian Battle of Britain pilot. He shot down an ME 109 in October 1940 and shared in a Junkers 88. He later commanded squadrons in Burma and in Italy. Clearly a top man. Yeah, and it just makes you think, doesn't it? You know, Downton... Four left now from the Battle of yeah. Britain, and we're we're just approaching that really traumatic moment. It's a bit like Harry Patch, isn't it? Yep. In in the First World War, and you know, I just can't believe that there's soon going to be no more Battle of Britain. But you're left. you're, I mean, you're a little, little younger than me, James. But we grew up surrounded by a generation of people who who yeah. experienced this and lived it, and uh, and and now they're. They're almost gone. It's extraordinary. One of the ones who's surviving is Morris Moundon, and he was actually the first ever RF pilot I interviewed. Really? Yep. 
back in, I reckon, 1999, so 20 years ago, I reckon. And I thought, God, I've got to get onto him quick because, you know, he might, might be dead tomorrow. <laughs> but 20, 20 years on, he's still yeah. around and good for him. And he was, he was just fascinating. And all of it, you know, you can imagine, the you know, first time ever speaking to a Battle of Britain veteran. I mean, you know, this is all brand new. It's all yeah. really exciting. And, and it's always a title privilege to talk to these guys. But he was, he was fantastic. He lived in Spain, actually, so I did it on the phone. Um, amazingly. But um, anyway, uh, we also mentioned Jeff Wellham's book, First Light, recently. And if you do fancy reading a first hand account of a Battle of Britain pilot well we all recommend that one yeah absolutely now now then James for those of our hardy band of podcast brothers we happy few well actually there's not that few of you it's growing every day downloading this episode in a timely fashion we'll be enjoying this particular episode of We Have Ways on the 3rd day of September 2019 so 80 years ago today at precisely 11.15am Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain told the nation that we are at war with Germany um, so I mean, we can't we can't be doing a Second World War podcast and not remark on that the, the, no. the actual outbreak. Uh, yeah, you know, eighty years and and just the, the events leading up to it are just so interesting and so fascinating. There's definitely some diplomacy failures on the part of the British. You know, yep. they could have got in bed with the Russians when when the, uh, the Soviets when there was an opportunity to do so, and they didn't. And they send out this this um, delegation in August, a mixed French British one, um, and the, they go on a sort of old old kind of um, Atlantic steamer uh, and it's all sort of a bit faded glory and, and they get Drax some, isn't it yeah early 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 Drax yes yep. yeah Admiral Drax yep who then rejoins the, he retires immediately afterwards and joins the Home Guard as a private um, but all the local defence volunteers they first were but anyway so they go out there and they just completely have missed the boat yep. totally uh, and you know, I think they're still on the way out there, or they've only just got to St. Petersburg when the deal is announced on around, what was it, the 22nd of August, I think yeah. it is. And, and, and Hitler briefs all his senior commanders. He tells them to come in civilian clothing yeah. um, at, to the Berghof um, down in uh, Berkisgarden, Bavarian Alps. And um, the next day... This weird thing happens over the Untersberg Mountains, which is this ridge of mountains that you can see from Hitler's front room. So he's in, in his kind of living room in the Berghof, he's created this vast window. It's about, I think it's like, like 10 foot high or something yeah. by kind of 8 foot. And the whole thing can be lifted up so you can have the air coming through. And then there's the famous balcony, you know, where you see him with Eva Braun and Blondie, the Alsatian yeah. and all the rest of it. And right in front of you are the Untersberg Mountains, which are incredibly famous in, in German mythology and all the rest of it, and sort of slightly kind of steeped in mysticism. But it's a sort of the equivalent of Tintagel, I suppose, something yeah, like that. Yeah. And it's evening, and they know what's happening, and, and, the, and the decision to go into Poland has been made. Yep. And they're actually planning to do it, I think, on the, the, like the 28th of August or yes, something like that, before the 1st of because September. Because, of course, they delay, don't they? They, they delay they by, by putting it out, yeah. and that's because of Goering and his diplomacy yeah. efforts. Yeah. But anyway, so, so there is this... And there's this weird aurora borealis going on in the skies. Uh, and suddenly this... Uh, and it's sort of red and shimmering in the sky. Uh, and it, the red light pours down the Untersberg Mountains, creeps across the valley, and then across all the guys standing on the balcony. And they're covered in this this red light and one of the generals turns to Hitler and says this time we're not going to get away with it without a whole lot of blood Ooh. and Hitler goes so be it with a clenched jaw turns and walks back into the Berghof and you know if you saw that in a film you just think ah oh, bollocks that's absolutely rubbish that never happened but apparently it did but at the other end of the scale the um uh, the Soviets have no Nazi flags 
for um, uh, the announcement of the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact and have to get them off a propaganda film. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's just brilliant, isn't it? An anti-Nazi propaganda film. That that that, that film isn't that, that amazing? Yeah. Because obviously we are talking about ideologically absolutely different. ideologically opposed. Yeah. You know, Hitler Hitler has Hitler has cast Nazism as the the, the 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 bulwark, the answer to Bolshevism, the response to the response to Europe's response to Bolshevism. Yeah. He's cast the entire thing as. We have to, we have to do something about the, these appalling Bolsheviks, and now has to do, and now does this backflip. And of course, it's not, it's not a non-aggression pact. It's, the, it's called that, but it's not a non-aggression pact. It's an alliance. Yes. There's, there's no real way of looking at it other than that. They just, they, they agree to divvy up Poland. They agree to trade deals that, that allow, yep. the, 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 allow the, re, the, the, the German army, the Wehrmacht to carry on basically yep. the German economy to carry on because the year before you've got guns or butter where, yes. the, where, the, where they, they rearm, they're rearming so hard that they run out of foreign currency to, to buy butter to, to, to actually feed the German population and so they know the whole time they've overheated the, the Nazis know they've over, overheated the economy Schacht knows that they've overheated the economy yep. and knows that what they've got to do is uh, get stuff from somewhere and Schacht is the economic minister yeah exactly yep. yeah Schacht is the yeah is basically the chance exchequer and 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 so you end up this is not an, it's not a non-aggression pact it's an alliance it's a totally it's, cynical alliance yeah yeah which is is Temporarily mutually beneficial. Yeah, but massively beneficial to the to Germany at the time. Yeah, because because it gives him a, it gives Hitler a free hand. But then you've also got well, the, so, but the but then the Red Army invade Poland and they set about dismantling the Polish state. The, but it the, also the, but it also gives it also gives the Red Army a chance to kind of rebuild after the yeah. massive purges. I yeah. mean, it's like four out of five marshals are, are executed. Yeah. I think it's twenty two and a half thousand Red Army officers are kind of arrested and executed. Yeah, I mean that's just absolutely insane. Yeah, 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 and 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 gulagged and all that sort of thing. Yeah, because because. Khrushchev, uh, not Khrushchev, um, Rokos- Rokosovsky. Zhukov, for instance, yeah. is, 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 has been purged, hasn't he? I don't and think he, he has. It's Rokosovsky. Rokosovsky definitely yeah, is. Yeah. yeah, he has all his teeth pulled out yeah. and, his, and his nails. I mean, imagine coming back to. Right, I'll come back and work for Stalin then. Yeah, right. And yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah, Operation Progression, no problem. But but so so Brit so Britain and of course you, as you mentioned, they're, they're, they're going to go earlier in August and they don't. And there is this sort of there is this sort of stumbling into war by Germany and is it a bluff is it another attempt to to win small um win small uh, territorial gains but big political gains which is what what Hitler's been doing this entire time since the Rhineland he chips away at Versailles he knocks lumps off the yeah. off the settlement and they're big political victories internally but they're kind of regarded as cheap military victories you know which is how he how he gets to Poland and then and then and then it is an actual invasion because he doesn't have to invade Czechoslovakia. He doesn't have, you know, none of those things have to happen. All those things he threat threatens. This is where he has to come good on a threat and actually yes, see it through. And, and because of his absolutely woeful geopolitical understanding, <laughs> you know, because he's very myopic, he's yeah. very kind of tunnel vision, he's very kind of it's sort of, you know, my worldview is the only view that counts and therefore... I think this way, so therefore my enemies are going to think in yeah. exactly the way that I predict they're going to as well. You know, he just assumes that Britain and France, why would, if they don't care about Czechoslovakia, why would they care about the Poles? Yeah. And, and so he, he massively miscalculates on that one. But what is really interesting about it is that, you, you know, one of, the, one of the big questions is, why did the German people fall for it? And, of course, there's a whole host of reasons why they went, went for this. 
what the Nazis are doing very cleverly in the 1930s, and they 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 get power just as the economic tables are starting to turn after yep. the follow you know following the Wall Street crash and you know and all the rest of it and the Great Depression. So they come in just as the economy is just taking an upturn. So they create all the jobs and all the rest of it, and everyone sort of thinks, well, you know, this is quite good, isn't it? And they're, they're reinstilling kind of national pride, and everyone goes, yeah, well, I've got, you know, I'm quite behind that as well, and that's quite a good thing. Most people in Germany feel that they were completely robbed by the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah. So Hitler taking back all these lands where there are German-speaking people, everyone just goes, yeah, bring it on. You know, yeah. what's not to like? You know, absolutely. The interesting thing about, about Poland is the Danzig Corridor, yeah. which is this stretch of land which separates East Prussia, yep. which is still part of Germany, and sits isolated within Poland. Yep. And the only reason it's like that is so that Poland has a little bit of seafront. Yeah. But it is actually dominated by German-speaking people. Yeah. And, and you can understand why Germans would think, hang on a minute, you know, we want that back. That, that is rightfully ours. You yeah. know, lots of, lots of parts of, East, of Western Poland, as it's been redrawn, yeah. are German-speaking people. Now, of course, Danzig, and, and Danzig is now known as Gdansk. Because Gdansk. after the war, at the end of the war, um, Stalin solves this problem, doesn't he? <laughs> once and for by, all. <laughs> once and for all, by exporting Germans from this German part of Poland. Yeah, and, and repositioning them. And importing Poles yes. from the west, from the east of Poland. And basically, because a town like Breslau, which is Wrocław now, that's, uh, you go there, and that was a festung at the end of the war, they have eastern Polish cuisine there, even though it's western Poland. Mm. Because the population is Eastern Polish, right. transplanted Eastern Polish yeah. population, yeah. though it's the west of Poland. It, it, because because you get uh, at the end of the war, you get these massive um, redistributions of population to kind of to solve these problems forever. Uh, uh, but there is an, there is another bigger issue that I think plays into why so yeah. many Germans go for it, and that is basic. German insecurity about the position they are in the centre of Europe. Yeah. They're incredibly vulnerable. They're e- even, regardless of the Danzig Corridor or not, yeah. they've still got comparatively small access to the, to the world's seas. Yeah. Uh, they're stuck in the absolute middle of, of Europe. Traditionally, this is one of the most violent places on the entire planet. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Thirty Years' War, as we know in the, in the 17th century, was the most violent war ever to, to, to face... Europe, yep. in terms of numbers killed to yep. the proportion of the overall population. Yeah, and Brandenburg, Prussia, at the end of the Thirty Years' War, was essentially completely depopulated. Totally. Because it, so, so it was the cockpit of the Thirty Years' War, and our armies came and went all the way through there. And, right. and that's why then the Prussian state um, uh, manifests itself as a, as a military state, you know, the, the army yes. in search of a, yes. a, of a country, that, that idea. Exactly. That it gets itself on its feet. We have to, de- we have to defend ourselves. We have, to, we have to operate militarily, which is, of course, the Prussian military tradition that people talk about the Nazis inherited. Absolutely, absolutely. But but you can understand why people would feel insecure about this because you can be attacked from the south, from the yeah. southwest, from the east, from the west. You know, yeah. any which way, their their borders are vulnerable, and they've got a big border. And what Versailles has done is taken away that buffer zone. Yeah. It's made them kind of retrench and feel even more penned in and pegged in. They're also very very resource poor. They've got some coal, and that is literally about it yeah and obviously to kind of be a big manufacturing nation you need those resources you need access to them so this taking back of these lands this this expansion of the third reich 
is all part of making Germans feel more secure. Ironically, what Hitler's then about to do is, is chuck it all away by entering a massive war. But you can see why by 1939 people go into it. What is also really interesting is this idea that all Germans are really gung-ho and, and absolutely oh, no, all up for war. Lo- no one lo- wants lo- war. It's a pretty lukewarm reaction. Yeah, totally. And what, what people want is to take back the German lands without any violence yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, the... the, the, the the interesting thing, of course, is that is that Hitler's arguably Hitler's war aims are Brest-Litovsk, which is the the, the treaty that that um, the that the Russians sign in 1917 when they're knocked out of the war, essentially, yep. and and. So there's an art. There is a school of a historic, historiographical school of thought that says he's entirely traditional Hitler in his in his, in one way in his war aims. Is he want he wants what the what the Kaiser wanted? He wants what the Kaiser's government wanted. He's he's just doing what what Germany has always tried to do, which is it, carve some space out for you know neutralize France, carve some space out in the east, so that it has this it, it Laban's round, which is you know yep, we, we, yeah yeah. Anyway, um, it, it, there we are. But. Um, I've just been reading this new biography of Hitler, which I've been reviewing for um, a newspaper. Uh, And it's by a chap called Brendan Sims, who's a political, economic, academic based at Cambridge University. And you sort of think, well, you know, that's that's, that's to be welcome. That's a a good thing. My God, this is a pretty hard-going, dense book, I've got to say. But his overall thesis is this, that actually what you were saying about the ideology, Mm. that's anti-Bolshevism, that's absolutely second fiddle to his main thing, which is fear of the Anglo-American axis and capitalism and international Jewry. Uh, And that's his big thing. Uh, And actually... But Bolshevism, he sees Bolshevism as an international jury because he sees Bolshevism as a product yeah, yeah, of, of Karl Marx. Massively, because massively after, because after all, the Nazis hold the Jews responsible for capitalism and for communism. I mean, somehow. Exactly. <laughs> so what he's, what, he's conf- what he's sort of conflating is the fact that Hitler recognises that Britain and by, associ- you know, by um, uh, you know, hanging on the, on, on the other side of the Atlantic, America are, the, are his greatest threat, which is, you know, beyond question. I mean, of course they are. Yeah. Because Britain's the biggest just, empire in the world and the he, biggest global did, trading did empire. Did you realise that? I mean, you read his table talk and he's going, he's going on about the Americans don't know how to work, they don't know how to make anything any good, they're, um, they're feckless, lazy people who've been polluted by their racial um, heritage and all this sort of thing. And, and, and a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of the, a lot of the sort of casual conversation you have with Hitler talking about America is it, it, it's, it's, it doesn't sound I mean, it's, it's very interesting. It doesn't sound like that. I mean, I'm sure that, that uh, he knows more. He knows more than I well, do. Well, I don't think he does because I think what he's done is he's got all this. I really don't think he does, and I think it's really interesting because you look at the. You know, one of the things you always do is look at the sources of these things. Yeah. Uh, and his sources are all predominantly they are German sources, but original stuff that has been subsequently published. Right. So, you know, it's the Targa book and all the, you know, the war, yeah. uh, Kriegs Targa book, the, the war, the OKW uh, yeah. war diaries and all that kind of stuff, Hitler's speeches, accounts of his, his you know, political rants and all the yeah. rest of it. It's all that kind of stuff, um, all of which is great. But he seems to have read absolutely almost zero secondary sources. And had he done so, of course, he'd have realised that lots of people have been arguing for quite a long time that, that Britain posed the biggest threat to Hitler in 1939-1940 and obviously America posed a massive threat I I mean mean, there was you know Stephen Bungay's book was called The Most Dangerous Enemy which is you know a bit of a giveaway in the title but but you you know the idea that the idea that Hitler might have held contradictory views isn't isn't exactly novel either well this is this is the big fatal flaw in the whole argument I think that that you know it's kind of as though you can't have you can't be sort of anti-Bolshevist and anti-capitalist Americans and and you know against well, you the jury at the same time. Of course you, you can. You can if you're crazy. You can if you're crazy. Of course you yeah, can. Yeah. So so big big thought. Now now so yes. 
because after all, you can argue that 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 Hitler invading Poland finally gives the British Empire pr a, a, the pretext it has been trying to gather its skirts up. You know, there, there is because there is a feeling that obviously appeasement has failed, and by March of 1939, appeasement. I mean, and 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 even these days, I'm a little loath to use that label because the, because that idea has been chipped away at enormously because because it, it comes from the guilty men. Yes. Um, it, it published in you know Michael yeah, Foot. Michael Foot. Writing in 1940, accusing mm. Chamberlain of, uh, of getting us in, you know getting us in this fine mess, and the Chamberlain government and and of course he's a Labour politician. That uh, Chamberlain national government is a Conservative government. Blah blah blah. So there's politics involved in that too. Yeah. Right. So th there is an argument that Mar Czechoslovakia is carved up March 39. That you get the Ismay Memorandum, which I remember being the great red herring when I was doing my degree. Don't, don't, whatever you do, don't mention the Ismay Memorandum. We were told, which is um, the uh, chief of this Imperial, is General Hastings yeah, Ismay, chief of Imperial General Staff, yep. writes to the Chamberlain and says, "You know what? If we need to go to war, give us six months, and we're kind of we'll kind of have things straightened out and lined up." Right in March of 1939, of course. We, you're always told uh, uh, correlation is not causation. Yeah. Um, it's a coincidence that, but it doesn't half look like there is a mood in the British defence, in the Imperial Defence Establishment at that point. Okay, sod it. We're going to have to go to war with Germany, so we need to get sorted out. And this is the thing. David Edgerton makes this point. There's this enormous oil refinery commissioned in 19, around then in Liverpool, world's biggest oil refinery. What's that for? Um, yeah. armament, shadow armaments factories being built at this point and the, of course appeasement can only work if there is a big stick backing it in the end alright we've tried to we've tried to accommodate you but if, if you if, you know the, the appeasement can only work if it's got limits and of course yep. the limitation is 3rd of September 39 we're finally the Chamberlain government's well sod it then absolutely Here's but the other thing war. is also it's, it's not it's not you know rearming and appeasement aren't uh, incompatible no, i no, mean no. you know you can have both and i think you know chamberlain gets a, a really really bad press of course uh, not helped by darkest hour but but what's really interesting <laughs> is that he's the one who resists the urges of the army to to massively increase in size in the mid 1930s yeah. when he's chancellor of exchequer yeah. and says no 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 what we really need is a big air force yeah. and to, and, and and to and update our our yeah. navy and you want to do your updating of your navy i.e. your battleships and your aircraft carriers and heavy cruisers as soon as you can well in peacetime because yeah. they're the ones that are most expensive and take the longest amount of time you yeah. know once war comes you know you, you can churn out corvettes and frigates and and, and more destroyers comparatively straightforwardly i mean obviously nothing straightforward when you're building a massive great ship but a hell of a lot easier than a than a battleship of course yeah. and all of that is incredibly sensible and, and the army is absolutely outraged about this the other thing that chamberlain recognizes and recognizes quite rightly you can only have a really big army if you have conscription there's yeah. no way british society is going to stomach conscription no. in the mid-1930s it's just absolutely no way jose also if you have a big army what are you going to do with it where yeah. does it go yeah. the point of the navy is to defend our overseas interests, to defend our island, do all that stuff. It's not to be a ferrying service for the army. Yeah. You've got to put them somewhere. You know, where are they going to go? Well, and also, it's, having it's a great bonkers. big army um, can, can be interpreted by possible enemies as an extremely hostile <laughs> yes. thing. Whereas to building do. up an air force yeah. is it, seen it, as a defensive, defensive thing and, yeah. you know, we're just protecting our borders. And, and, you're, and, you're, and also, it's let the machine do the... Do the it's effort still rather, not flesh, which we yeah, talked yeah, about yeah, before. before yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just think what's interesting, though, is is that um, I, I always kind of imagine, you know, think about that amazing last weekend of, of you know, uh, of, of the last weeks of the summer of 1939. Yeah. It was an absolute scorcher. Last week of, Oct of August 1939 was like lovely. This. It was like this. Everyone was playing cricket. And, you know, and I know I've mentioned Headley Verity before, but, you know, on the last, you know, on the Friday... 
Friday the 31st of August. Yeah. Um, or rather, no, Friday the, the 1st of September, the day that the Germans go into Poland, is the last day of first-class cricket in this country until 19, the end of the 1946 season. Mm. And um, it's Sussex, important what matters, yeah. isn't it, ladies and gentlemen? Well, everyone else has get, everyone's yeah. cancelled their games, yeah, yeah, yeah. apart from Sussex and Yorkshire, yeah. who are playing down at Hove. And the reason they're doing that is because it's a big benefit match for one of the Sussex players. And they go, well, OK, we'll play it. Headley Verity skittles out Sussex for next to yeah. nothing, gets sort of six for 14 or something. On the Saturday, the 2nd of September, the Yorkshire team go back to Yorkshire in their bus, in the team bus, driving up through England, this England that's just yeah. bathed in sunlight and just looking absolutely quintessentially, you know, chocolate box. Yeah. Sunday, of course, is a declaration of war. And on the Monday, Headley Verity, one of the, you know, the greatest spin bowlers that we've ever produced, signs up and joins the Green Howards. On the Monday, on the Monday, Monday the 4th of September, out of conviction. You know, no, doesn't have to do it. Yeah. You know, he's not conscripted. He will never be conscripted. If he is conscripted, he'll be as a sort of PE teacher like Don Bradman or something. But he goes and does his bit. And Blackpool, the top of the Football League. Now, the thing yeah, is, well. the thing is, of course, we've talked about all the, all, the, all the factors drawing into the 3rd of September. What, you know, stir the, stir the blood and snap the sinews. What does the British Empire then do? Um, uh, to rescue Poland from its fate? And the answer is... Fuck all. Fuck all. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, it could be... I mean, the, one of the really... One of the colossal paradoxes about the Second World War uh, uh, in popular culture is we, we view it as this moral crusade. Um, uh, you know, and luckily for us, that the, they are bad guys dressed in black with skulls on their uniforms, the Nazis, yeah. right? Are we the bad guys? Are we the bad guys? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mitchell and Webb, right? Yeah. Poland, and of course the existence of Poland is an affront to the Germans, to the German, the Nazi government, and to the Soviet government. Because the yeah. Soviets were defeated by the Poles in the early 1920s, um, when Poland um, absolutely spanked the, the Red Army and established itself as a free state. Right? We do nothing for Poland. We treat the Poles. They get a really raw deal in the in the war, don't they, from us? Fair to say, and well, at the yeah, end, yes, and at the end, yes. the toss to the toss to the Soviets. You, 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 you. You've but again, against the wishes of the British. I mean, you know, they're they're completely outmaneuvered, outbargained by by Stalin and 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 Roosevelt at Yalta. I mean, there's no in February early February yeah, because, 1945. Because, I mean, because by then, by then, Churchill's influence is is waning is, is gone, and, and yeah. you know everyone, everyone sort of goes, oh, you know, Churchill tossed Poland to the to the to the to the wolves, but you know, it's not like you could do anything else about yeah. it. To be perfectly honest, and I mean, the, you know, yeah, yeah. Britain sort of no, we're going to carry on fighting because we entered this war for the poles, and therefore we're going to keep yeah. on fighting yeah. and, and get what's right for the poles. I mean, that's just never going to happen. Yeah. In May 1945, we gave home to zillions of, of hundreds upon thousands of, of poles who emigrated here. And I know it's not the same as coming back to their country by any stretch of the imagination, but. You know, I don't really see what else we could have done. You know, we, we were the ones who kind of sent in supplies to the Warsaw Uprising yeah. and, and all the rest of it. I mean... And then the Poles get the blame for Arnhem, which is we'll be talking about yeah. in a few weeks' time. I I'm mean, sure. I, 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 of course, one feels desperately sorry for the Poles. And I, I was lucky enough to, to interview a number of people who actually ended up fighting for two Polish corps that we were talking about the other day with the yeah. Wojciech the Bear. Uh, and, and it was, you know, I mean, it's really tragic. I mean, some of these guys were not going back to, their, to see their homes until, 
you know, the early 1990s. Yeah. Uh, after the Cold, after the, um, the end of the Cold War and the, and the Iron Curtain come down. And, you know, their home that had been in Poland was now in Belarusia. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't yeah. in Poland at all. So it, it, is a, it is a great tragedy. But, you know, the Poles weren't in living exactly in the land of the free. By, by 1939. Well, no, of it's a pretty unsavoury government. I mean, that's, <laughs> it, that's the really in, the other interesting thing is that, you know, this this idea of a liberal, uh, a, a war of liberal values and a liberal crusade. And in fact, the Polish government is pretty unpalatable and in fact thinks it's going to be able to strike a deal with the Nazis because they agree on a load of stuff. And, uh, 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 and, and so the, the complexity of it, which, which I think draws us back to British government, there's your pretext... If they'd had the stones, they'd have done it over Czechoslovakia in March, but they didn't, and and they hadn't quite got the Spitfires, well, and they hadn't quite got no, the stuff lined up. No, and and so, I mean, I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't really see what Britain could have done in 1939. Oh. I, I, I could, I can see what what I mean. They could have sent over some bombers, of course, but but really, the onus was on the French because they're the only ones with a half decent army. Yeah. And what's really interesting is is that we fall for the kind of German propaganda of their military strength. Of the super war machine. Yeah, yeah, the super war machine machine. which they've been pumping out on the kind of newsreels and all the rest of it. In actual fact, the French could have just walked to Berlin. Well, and... However, but they don't. It's the Tsar offensive. Now, yes, not a lot the of Tsar inoffensive. Yeah, not a lot, no, exactly. Not a lot of people know. Not a lot of people know this, right? But the French did invade Germany. They do in September 1939. Yep, but they take their time about it. It's fair yep. to say. So they move right up to the German border. Yeah. By the 11th of 10th, 11th of September, they're yep. there. All the troops, what's really interesting is that the French troops, most of the French troops there are gung-ho, spoiling for a fight and up for it. Yep. They are up for it big time. I've read a lot of personal testimonies and diaries and letters and stuff of people who were there and they're all like, yeah, let's go and get these fucking krauts and bosh. Yeah. You know, I mean, they really, really are. And then they sit there and nothing happens and they'll go, come on, yeah, tomorrow's the day. Uh, and then another day passes and they go... Yeah, probably be tomorrow, won't it? <laughs> and, and, then, and then another day passes and they're like, you know, and by the 18th of September, they're kind of thinking, they're sort of looking at their watches going, scratching their heads going, hang on a minute, what, what the hell's going on here? And yeah. in fact, actually, it's all over by then. Yep. I mean, it's all over because it's all over for Poland and, and it's not going to happen. Um, so they're not going to be saving Poland. But the second thing is, is they've done the inoffensive offensive. The, uh, uh, five kilometres. Five kilometres, they go, I mean, go across. I mean, first of all, war terms. That's like, uh, they're going gangbusters, aren't they? It's some yep. sort of, uh, you know... But, but one infantry regiment, um, uh, infantry company, says, um, you know, X company moved across um, and um, was advancing until it was fired upon by an automatic weapon. <laughs> Not mm. multiple automatic weapons. An automatic weapon, i.e. one. Yep. So they then fell back. So the whole of that French... Offensive is effectively being halted by a single German machine gun or rifle or whatever. You just because the thing is, you, I mean, it's utterly pathetic. Because the, German, the Germans, the Germans simply did not have any way to respond to uh, an intervention from the West, did they? They wouldn't, they wouldn't have been able to deal with it because their their army, their heavy, their heavy, their heavy stuff is committed in Poland, and also then proceeding, to, then proceeding to dismantle Poland, yep. to, to to steal stuff, uh, round people up. Yep. Um, uh, Einsatzgruppen start going in. Yeah, yeah, the, you yeah, know, the, 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 basically the Holocaust gets going. Pretty if the much French had gone in in force, yeah. it would have been all over. Yeah. That would have been the end of the Second World War. Yeah. 
immediately. And, and I know I stick the knife into the French in 1939, 1940 quite a lot, but I'm not sticking it into the individual French soldiers. No, it's the people at it's the, the top. It's the leadership, and, th and this is what happens when you have a broken political leadership, yeah. because you have no military leadership as well, because the military, of the, of the authority coming down from the political masters comes from the politicians. Yeah. And if you're in a coalition um, government where no one can agree on anything, and you've got something like 12 different political parties in that coalition, nothing happens. And the uh, second big failing is the fact that all these senior French commanders are really old. Yeah. They're all in their 60s, they're yeah, yeah. doddery old men, and they're just simply not up to speed. It's like you know your grandma who's what's an ipad i mean it's the yeah. same sort of thing i mean it's just it's just hopeless yeah uh, and so all these guys who are really quite up for it and fabulously well equipped i mean their uniforms might look a little bit out of date but they've got really good guns really good small arms yep. fantastic artillery fantastic fast tanks yeah, yeah yeah moraines devil teens all the rest of it curtises you know they're, they're not short of kit they've also got in development the amazing i think it's called the block 52 which is a four engine bomber that can fly over 300 miles an hour Right. I mean, is that, which is just about to come out off the production yeah. lines. I mean, it's absolutely awesome. And actually, that's not till the, till the summer of 1940. But anyway, that's by the by. But my point yeah. is, they've, they've got a lot of really good stuff. And frankly, they're better kitted out than a lot of the German units yeah. who are still feeling their way. There's all sorts of failures of the kind of coordination of the all-arms unit of the Panzer divisions. They haven't worked it out at all in the Poland campaign. They nearly run out of ammunition. And actually, the whole thing is a massive, very, very nearly a massive shit show but for the Germans. what they're not equipped with is purpose, which is what the, the Germans have equipped From themselves. the top. Purpose. From the top that's, that has gone top all the way to grassroots. Yeah. So, so you, you, you know, your army, your, your, your man in the foxhole's mobilised with the message from the top, and in the French army, he isn't. Yeah, and, and everyone at the German leadership all recognised that an invasion of Poland was a massive risk, because by doing so, they'd be leaving the back door open. On, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, well, I think we've gnawed that bone right down to the gristle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll take a break, we'll be back in a tick and I expect we're going to carry on with this. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. We're sat in my garden. I've got the sun on the back of my neck. James is still We've sat in the shade. The, the, the lawn mower, yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. So basically, um, where I live, without giving it away, um, there's a park behind where I am, and they're mowing the lawn, of course, because we wanted to record a podcast in the garden, because Sod's Law is in full operation in W4. <laughs> um, right, so, so we've discussed how, how we end up with the declaration of war on the 3rd of September, but there's another declaration of war on the 3rd of September, which is France, of course. Yes, a little bit later in the day. A little bit later in the day. Again, political... You know, prevarication. Yeah, and, and what you've obviously got is in, in London, you've got people going, hey, the bloody French are totally unreliable, we can't get them to show up for anything. And you know perfectly well that in France are going, perfidious Albion, they are trying to land us in the merde with the Germans yet again. Look how they, look how, look how they didn't pull their weight in the last war. And, all, and you know that's what's going on. Um, in, um, in Christopher Clarke's book, Sleepwalkers, have you, have you read yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, Because he makes this really excellent... one of the best of those, that crop yeah, that came out in Yeah, and he makes a really excellent point that you've got... Um, it, it, you've got everyone reading everyone else's newspapers, right? And so the, the Germans are reading the British newspapers in London. The German embassy is reading the British newspapers in London and ringing up the government going, going, Jesus Christ, what? What's going on? This war panic. And the British government going, oh, you really mustn't believe what you read in the papers. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and that—that that is kind of, I think, always uh, it was such an interesting insight that because, because quite clearly, 
what you've got in in the last three years before the war, the British government, the French government don't trust each other one bit, but are stuck with each other. So they're reading all the signs they're getting from different sources, from 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 the papers, from what's happening in the French Parliament, and then what's, then what's happening in Parliament, and they and there's no they they can't come to a clear um, conclusion about what the other side's intentions are. Yep. The British are running their own, as ever, running their own thing, have their own, you know, because in August, after all, in Shanghai, you've got a big bl- blow up with the with the British embassy, and yep. and suddenly focus is thrown away from Europe to, to the Far East and the British are thinking oh Christ we're going to have to go war with the Japanese now Yeah, and that always when people talk about the appeasement picture they forget that of course the British government's looking right to the other side it's of the world globally yeah and the, I mean, well, the main reason I remember this is because when I was doing this this week in uh in my, during my degree, we all we all read our essays out about you know the the the, the sort of the sort of um, it's like get, they get to the top of the roller coaster at, at, in, at the start of August, and then whoa, down you go, and there's yeah, war yeah. on the third of September. And our tutor went, well, what's happening in China at this point? And we are nine, none, of, <laughs> none of us knew. No one knew at all. And he did this thing and reached behind him and pulled a book out from behind his head and went, I think you'll find. <laughs> and read, read us the you know, cock. But 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 the, but so the French but the French aren't dealing with that. The French aren't looking. They're just looking at Germany and they're thinking, can't do another Verdun which is why they built the Maginot Line, they're, they're thinking, if we can possibly avoid this, we probably will, still, at this point, aren't they? Well, on paper, the principle is, is of how to stop Germany coming in and attacking them again. The, yeah. the, the principle behind it is, is reasonably sound. What yeah. you do is you, you, you uh, make sure that there's one stretch of your border that they're simply not going to go across, which yep. is the, uh, the long straight bit running kind of north-south. Yep. Uh, and that's where the Maginot Line is, and that's very effective. And then the next bit, you kind of think, well, okay, well, we'll put enough enough troops up. One of the big problems is that what they really want to do is go out to meet. Yes. The, the, the dilemma is, do you go out and meet any German advance that might come through the low countries, yep. or do you stay put behind your French border? The problem with that is that a lot of um, France's heavy industry, yep. uh, industrial area and resources area, the yep. coal mining area and all the rest of it, is in that northern sector. And so to stay put is a bit fraught, and they don't, for psychological reasons, well, they, done, they, reasons did, they, they did they that don't, before. They don't want to have fighting on French soil again. So that's quickly kicked into touch, and they go, okay, well, we'll move into, into Belgium. The problem is the Belgium's neutral and saying, well, you can't move into us until such time that the Germans cross our border yeah and which case there's a bit of a dash on and and that's something that's slightly anathema to the french because they don't do anything in a hurry the whole point is the slow and methodical yeah. and you know we get make sure that we've got everything backed up and what we do is we resist and we hold the line to start off with and then we've got all these mobile divisions that will then move up but they're just operating at a pace which is completely completely at odds with the speed of which the germans are planning to, to operate and therein lies the whole problem and the one thing that they've completely failed to under uh, to appreciate is how much they're going to need more modern comms in all this yeah. and, and those are the fatal flaws but the other big problem is again is this problem of leadership and and what is really interesting is when you look at you know you, you start reading the kind of um memoirs of people like edward spears who's a kind of really important li- a real francophile and major liaison officer and churchill and all these guys it's absolutely clear that at the top of the the, the leading french leaders and the british leaders actually really like each other you know there's yep. a, there is a personal rapport there which all augurs well they, they they are able to talk to each other properly sensibly without everyone kind of blowing blowing off and getting in strops yep. of each other so there is there is this fundamental kind of sort of mistrust of overall intentions because they're not convinced that they're kind of mutually quite compatible yeah 
But there is a kind of personal... Because, because they're not. Because they're not, yes. Yeah. But there is a... There is a there is a um, a sort of mutual respect and regard for one another, I think, yeah. which is really really interesting, which a lot of people don't appreciate. Yeah, but I mean, you've got Churchill at the time saying, "Well, the French army's going to do the do the fighting anyway." You know, we've got the magnificent. Well, that Wallo was absolutely, the, but that was understood by French, the alliance. That the they great created. undefeated French army of the First World War that, that that survived the meat grinder of Verdun and went on to triumph is, is well is what's in people's minds. Absolutely, I mean, we have a standing army of you know. Under- about half a half a half a million with yeah. with TA units yeah. mobilized. So only about 150, 100, 200 or something. No, maybe it's a bit more than that. More like a quarter of a million uh, um, standing army. Yeah. The French have well over a million, but they have an ability because of their reservists, because you have conscription in France all yeah. the way through between the interwar years, and there's a convoluted um, system of uh, being a reservist. So that immediately after you leave, you're on you know yeah. you're on close reserve for. I think it's four years. And, and the ultimate reserve thing is 16 years. Yeah. So that means that within 48 hours, they can mobilise something like two and a half million men. Mm. You know, so that is in a different league to what the British can do. And yeah. of course, they're a much bigger landmass, so they can house all these army, armed forces. They've got the guns. They've got, the, you know, they've got 14,500 guns compared to 7,500 that the German have got or something like that. Yeah. You know, so they're, they're materially, they're much superior. But it's them. modern comms. And anyway, our contribution... The British contribution is going to be is well, it's, but it's, it's going to be a blockade, uh, naval yes, blockade, which, which because, they do immediately because that, because that worked before and very effectively. And very, very effectively. A few years ago, I went. I, I was very fortunate. I went to the. I went to uh, Shrivenham to the um, Staff College. The, 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 yes, great, isn't it? Yeah, really fantastic to talk to, to pick some people's brains about Arnhem because because uh, the chance came up that I'll do it right. And they made the point that from the 3rd of September 1939, there was a conviction in Allied circles the Germans would collapse any minute. And that, that, that basically never went away. The, no. uh, uh, throughout the war, there was a conviction that at some point they're going to go, we can't win this, and th- th- there would be rational actors in Germany that would take control and throw the towel in. Or that the, the, the whole thing would collapse on itself like a pack of gods. Because actually, if you look at it in the cold, if you look at it in the cold light of day, and this Duncan Weldon's just done this really great... Um, little series on uh, Radio 4 about the economic aspects of the Second World War and, and the, 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 you look at Germany none of it should have happened no. agriculture for instance isn't there it's, no it's, it's, it's peasant it's essentially peasant agriculture under mechanised they don't have pigs. they don't exactly they don't have and not enough wool we've talked about this before but they don't have they don't have like a, like a mechanised agriculture no. like, like the British did and, and just all these sort of all these things fall into place and so, so from the 3rd of September cold light of day dispassionate analysis of it Germany Germany sh- it can't work. No. Which is which is why also people are avoid trying to avoid a war. Well, and also because they don't have a they don't have a merchant fleet and they don't have a big enough navy yeah. and they don't have access to the world oceans to enable them to, to fulfil yeah. the shortfall of resources that they that, that they suffer from. You know, so you know if, if Britain wants to get bauxite and copper, it's not a problem because you send a ship there and go and pick it up and yeah. pay for it in cash yeah. and and, you, and you're good to go. The Germans just don't have that. Yeah. Capacity, uh, and it's really Which interesting is one because of the, the narrative of World War Two is is that we're all Little Britain and, and backs yeah. to the wall, and we're all Captain Mannerings and, and private yeah. bikes. When, when in actual fact, no one really thought that at the time. Everyone was a bit worried in 1940 that we might be invaded, and totally shocked by what had happened on the continent. But yeah. there was this: the vast majority of people had this view that. Britain would be okay, and, yeah. and because we are the world's biggest empire in yeah. ever known I mean, the, the, in the, the world. The Germans, in, in the Germans take on once once America involved. The Germans have taken on three economies, each of which are bigger than their own. Yeah, two of which are completely self-sufficient in 
raw mat- raw materials and resources, the Soviet Union and the Americans. Yeah. And then a third that can buy them from anywhere in the world if it needs them. Yes. So Which is why, you know, go back to an earlier argument, and, and why, to, why, why Germany is going to lose from yeah. November 1941. And so, so now the, the US, of course, because we keep touching on the US, th- what they do uh, on the 3rd of September uh, is go, oh, well, we're, no, we're neutral, sorry, not coming in. Yes, but okay, so I, okay, I think <laughs> no, there's a... No, no, sorry, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, rather Thanks than getting bogged down much. on this now... Let's do a whole. We can do a whole podcast on on America in the start of the war because I think it's really, really, really interesting, and, yep. it's, and it goes against going to what most people know about the United States. I mean, bottom line is they have the world's nineteenth largest army in 1939, about one hundred and eighty eight thousand men strong, which is tiny by by world standards yep. uh, of nineteen thirty nine, and they're sandwiched between Portugal and Uruguay. They have, I think, seventy four fighter planes. Seventy four. Yeah. You know, by by. By 1943, they're, create, they're building 83,000 aircraft in the air, which is 1,000 more than the capacity of Twickenham Stadium. But in 1939, they have You can get that many planes in Twickenham? <laughs> you know what I mean. And, 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 you know, they've got almost no tanks. They, they, there is not a single company in America that is producing explosives at that point. Yeah. Military explosives. Incredible. You know, so the turnaround they do, coincidentally... Um, Rearmament for America really starts to kick in from June 1940. Yep. 18 months on, and this process is going to take 18 months because it takes eight, six months to get all the machine tools made, six months to train the workforce, yep. and six months before the production lines are starting to, cre- to create stuff. Seriously, and you were talking about coincidences earlier on, or, or just. Uh, um, but but if you go from June 1940 and fast forward to 18 months, what have you got? You've got December 1941, yeah. which coincidentally is the month that. Ah oh, no, not off. again! <laughs> yeah, can you believe it? <laughs> and anyway, of course, but, let's, but, that, let's but that's about that British time, and French really money paying. It deserves for, and it deserves but some but some detail. It's British and French money paying for those. The, the, that startup, isn't it? Yes, and very uh, almost entirely British because the French are out of it by the time. Yeah, but they really but, kick but, in. but in '39 when it when it's yes, when they're it's, starting to, and, yeah. the, and the, the new charity rules are amended in November yeah. 1939 yeah. at the uh, urging of uh, of Roosevelt. And what they do is they say, okay, we're still neutral, but anybody who wants can to buy, buy it can buy it on a cash and carry basis. Yeah. But of course, the only only country that's able to do that is Britain and France particularly Britain because Britain's got vast amounts of cash already in the US. like the Americans to say one thing and do another. Right well that's it for this week Um, once again. We're trying to win over American uh, listeners. Oh yeah sorry yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) Well there we go I think um, uh, the thing is is just the issues thrown up by the declaration of war 3rd of September that you look back into the 30s you look forward into the 40s um, that is, I mean, there's basically a bottomless pit right there. But, but now, it is so interesting, isn't but it? But we have to stop, James. Yes, we do. And we have to thank our listeners. Basta. Uh, anyway, thank you, everyone. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> it's Italian. I know it is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Um, please do keep the questions coming in to the hashtag we have ways on Twitter. And uh, please do subscribe if you haven't done so already. And remember also that in September we will be featuring our Arnhem Market Garden content, which will commemorate the 75th anniversary. And we'll be doing nine shows in a row to cover the nine days yeah. of the Market Garden operation. I have an idea for one of those shows, by the way. Oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> See you next time. Yep. Cheerio. <laughs>